You're listening to the Art During Wartime podcast. I'm your host, David Junk, and today our guest is Daniel Bilak. Thanks very much for having me, David. Before we discuss your new feature film, Dobush, please tell us about yourself. Where are you from and where did you go to school and, and what have you been doing with your career? You are a Ukrainian-Canadian lawyer by profession, as I understand. Yeah, don't hold it no, against no, me. No, no, we won't, we won't. I tell people I was born in a small Western Ukrainian village called Toronto and uh, went uh-huh. to uh, university in Toronto and law school at uh, McGill University in Montreal. Uh, I've been in Ukraine uh, 32 years. I came just before independence uh, arrived. I caught the bug early on and, and I just stayed involved, uh, done different things. Been in the private sector four times inside the Ukrainian government as a senior advisor, including the two prime ministers. Uh, but, you know, you do different things in Ukraine because everything here is possible. And uh, so I uh, sing in a monastery choir. Um, I was involved in helping get uh, Ukraine's autocephalous uh, Orthodox Church uh, implanted here. And uh, uh, I sing in a rock musical. And now this is my uh, first film that I'm, I'm actually co-producer of. Uh, Max Asadji from Pronto Films is, uh, is the producer. But uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a great honor and, and a heck of a lot of fun. You said so many things there. I, I'd love to follow up on that rock musical at some point later. That's a lot of fascinating things you're doing there in, in Ukraine. I don't, I don't know how you have time for so much. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you are an advisor to the prime minister, um, a couple prime ministers. How did you make the leap from government service to producing films? It's not really a leap. It's more like a sidestep. Um, not, nothing here is uh, is exclusive or or self contradictory. It's it's all layered. Um, uh, you know, you have your public life, you have your private life, and uh, and you have uh, all your interests, and um, and somehow they all come into this maelstrom of uh, of activity and and cultural richness uh, that is Ukraine. You know, it. I was involved in in working on uh, reforms in the country. My first uh, deal in Ukraine was acting for the Canadian banknote company that is uh, it's a company that prints currencies around the world, including Canada's, uh, but then got uh, some money from the Canadian government to help out the new Ukrainian state printing its new currency, the hryvnia, which is actually an old currency because it goes back a thousand years uh, to Prince uh, Volodymyr of Kiev. Uh, that was his currency. So this was deliberate uh, link with uh, with the historical statehood of uh, of Ukraine with the new state, and uh, not that this was a Ukraine was a new state, but it was in a, it was really an extension of uh, of a historical process with an aberration called the Russian Federation and uh, uh, the Russian Empire and uh, and the Soviet Union in the middle. You are a co-producer for the film. Why did you choose the story of Dovbish as your first film? This is this is the first film you've ever uh, produced, correct? Or co-produced? That's right. I sort of came in late in the day. Uh, the The film had already been 75% shot and uh, and they and they didn't have enough funds to complete it. The film is the idea of Oles Sanyan. Um, he's an Oscar-nominated director, probably one of the best directors in the, in the history of Ukrainian film. And uh, he had this vision of, uh, he likes doing historical films that speak to contemporary society. And uh, he told me that Dobush came to him as a, as a theme around uh, which to coalesce the, the events that took place in the, on, on the Maidan in 2014, 
when the Ukrainian people rose up to throw out uh, the pro-Russian uh, president. You know, he, it was sort of the, the theme of Ukraine's historical struggle for freedom and liberty and the fact that it will not be put down and it cannot be oppressed. Um, you know, this is, you know, even in this war, especially in this war, when you talk to soldiers why they're doing this, they they tell you, we are here to defend our God-given land. So it's it's not just a, a piece of territory. It's a it's it's something that is religious in in sacred to them. You know, Ukrainians have never invaded anybody. Uh, we've always been invaded, and and so you know we're pretty good at defending ourselves. Uh, but you know, once in a while, we get overrun by forces that are far superior in number to ours. Um, but this time, uh, with the help of the United States, especially the people of the United States, for whom we're extraordinarily grateful. And our other allies, um, we've been able to uh, to hold them off and and take the fight to them, and and we will win. Um, it's just a question of how long it'll take and how many lives it's going to cost. What is the story of Dobish? He, I mean, in very sort of crudely, he's sort of the Ukrainian Robin Hood: uh, robs from the rich, gives to the poor. But that that would be a gross uh, oversimplification. He. He, he's a legend. Uh, somebody named Oleksa Dobushchuk actually did exist. He's in uh, the records of the procuracy, the prosecutor's office in in, in Polish archives for uh, all the crimes that Oleksa Dobush <laughs> allegedly committed in this film, which is rising up against uh, uh, the nobility. And basically, that's what it was. This was a struggle for freedom by people who lived in the Carpathian Mountains in western Ukraine. Uh, back then, they were called Rusins, sort of proto-Ukrainians. They would have spoken a dialect of Ukrainian uh, today. And uh, they were ruled by by overlords who were members of the Polish mobility. Um, and in some cases, more benign than uh, than in others. And, and in this particular case, the legend is that there was a particularly brutal rule by Princess Yablonowska uh, that, uh, that she wanted to uh, essentially overthrow the the Polish crown and take seize power. And she was being bought off by the Russians to do it. And, uh, Dobush uh, and his gang, uh, uh, steal the money and, uh, and basically use it to raise up the people, uh, against, uh, this oppression. And it's, it's not a complicated storyline, but yet there are really layered aspects to it. It's a love story. Uh, it's a story of two brothers and the tensions and the, and the love that they have there. It's a story about people in a community uh, just wanting to get on with their lives and and being left alone uh, to to live them the way they want to live them. And it's a story about overthrowing the people that won't let them do that. It sort of resonates very much with uh, with what happens today, although it wasn't mm-hmm. made for for this period. Um, it we we finished filming uh, in 2021. Uh, mind you, we were at war. We've been at war, as you know, since 2014 when the Russians invaded uh, the Donbass and annexed Crimea uh, after the Maidan Revolution. So, you know, people think that this war started in 2022. It, it, it Really, we've been at war for eight years. We just had the second phase of that, the full-scale invasion, in February of 2022. So I think that when you when you make a film like this, you obviously have your uh, the lenses through which you you film it are, are contemporary, but as well as your vision of historical. And this is Olesanyan's vision and his understanding and interpretation of the legend of Dobush. It really speaks to contemporary audiences in the context in, in which we find ourselves uh, today. I mean, 
the audience reaction has been just unbelievable. I mean, this will be one of the biggest blockbusters in, in Ukrainian film history. The hero of your film sounds like a cross between Robin Hood and Superman. Am I getting that correctly? Yeah, I won't disagree. <laughs> and so the connection to the, the war is, and resistance to Russia, basically, is that, is that the direct connection to the film? Well, it's, it's, it's resistance to oppression. It's a resistance to, to anybody who tries to tell us how to live our lives. Uh, we just want to live our lives in freedom. We want to live it in harmony with our neighbors, uh, both the immediate neighbors we have in our uh, in our community as well as our foreign neighbors. And I mean, that's one of the the important messages in this, and why we have a a Jewish figure in the uh, in in the movie uh, Balshem Tov, because that that also speaks to the fact that Jews and Ukrainians always tended to get along in their communities until the pot was stirred by by an outside hand by that outsiders. needed to uh, mm. to divide and conquer, whether they were Polish nobility, Russians, or, or somebody else. But, um, you know, the, it was a, the awkward part in this, uh, frankly, was the fact that the, the, the bad guys in this movie are Polish at, at a time when they're our closest friends and allies uh, in, uh, in this war. But it's important to note that historically, this, this is not a... A movie about Ukrainians rising up against the Poles, uh, as I said, you know the notion of a Ukrainian as a as a homogeneous polity in the in the 18th century just, just didn't exist. And in fact, uh, Poland as a homogeneous polity didn't really exist. You had you had the nobility, uh, which consider themselves above everybody. You had the tradespeople and the townsfolk, and then you had the the serfs and the peasants, uh, who were basically slaves. And it didn't matter where you matter whether you were. Polish, Slovak, Romanian, Hungarian, or Ukrainian. You know, they were all in the same category. And, and in the movie, we have one of the band members in Dobush's uh, group is, uh, is a Pole. And there would have also have been you know, Slovaks, Ro 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 Romanians, and, and Hungarians in that, in that band because they all had one thing in common, and that was that they wanted to be free people. So that's really what the story is about. It's not an, it's not an ethnic story. It's, it's about much bigger values uh, of freedom and, and liberty. And th this is the conversation I always try to have with, with my American friends about why it's so important for the United States to continue uh, supporting Ukraine in the current war is because we are fighting for exactly the same values as uh, the American uh, colonists did in, uh, in 1776. And in fact, against a regime that was infinite that is infinitely more brutal than than the british were and so i, I think that i think that the, these i think that this movie will will hopefully resonate beyond a ukrainian audience and when we take it into the u.s uh hopefully we'll get some distribution into into more mainstream markets so that average americans can uh, can enjoy it as well I'd like to talk to you about that too as well before that though i wanted to ask you about the the theme of Struggling for national identity is a very, very important theme, obviously, in, in, in Ukraine now. And is that a theme in your film? I, I, I think you've, you've actually hit one of the main, the main issues. Uh, you know, I've been in, as I said, I've been in the country 32 years. And, and actually, this is one of the things that, that I've struggled with uh, over the years is, is fighting the, the, the inner Soviet, uh, the inner Russian demon uh, that uh, that possessed the minds and hearts of many Ukrainians uh, over the years. I mean, the Soviet Union essentially enslaved people 
Uh, somebody said it was uh, a system designed to distribute uh, poverty and misery and uh, to everyone equally. And, and, and that's certainly what happened. But you know, I, I, when I came in 1991, uh, people were telling, telling me about the brotherly relations and, and that kind of stuff. This certainly wasn't my upbringing in, in Canada and wouldn't have been to my contemporaries in the United States uh, who came from Ukrainian uh, parents and, and grandparents either. But um, I think that really our watershed moment in terms of the development of Ukrainian identity or reemergence of a Ukrainian identity, because it was, it was basically brutally suppressed. People didn't understand their culture. They didn't understand a lot of the songs. They didn't understand the religion. Uh, they were all told they were really just little Russians. And we should be so grateful for everything that the great Russians have done for us. And it was all bullshit. And, uh, you know, and it was deliberate because the Russians uh, don't have much of their own uh, culture. They tend to appropriate uh, history and culture from, from the societies that they colonize. It's one big colonial enterprise. And, and that's the only way that it can sustain itself. And so we are the, the bone in the throat for the Russian empire, whether it has the Putinist uh, uh, form or, or the Soviet form or something else. Because as Bignev Brzezinski, who is Jimmy Carter's national security advisor and a, and a brilliant uh, uh, a political analyst, he said in 1991 that without Ukraine, Russia will never be an empire. Russia can only be an empire with Ukraine because we are their window onto Europe. And we're a European country. We're not an Asiatic country like, uh, like the Russians are. So this, this notion of identity was, was something that you, you always had the people who were more uh, culturally con and, and ethnically, and not even ethnically, but culturally and politically conscious as Ukrainians in Central and Western Ukraine. And that kind of, uh, of national identity, emerging national identity, tended to seep into Eastern Ukraine, which was much more paternalistic uh, and, under, and, and Soviet in its mindset, because that's where all the heavy industries were in one company towns. And, you know, you had oligarchs uh, emerge, big businessmen that basically uh, owned those people because their enterprises that they essentially stole from the state after independence uh, ran those towns. And that's where they got their political power for. So we had this this struggle for which direction was Ukraine going to go, leaning towards Russia or reintegrating in, into Europe. And the Maidan was the breaking point because people wanted to go to Europe. People understood that as Ukrainians, we are historically a part of the European family of nations. And when Yanukovych, uh, the, pro, the former president, uh, pro-Russian president, basically kiboshed our European aspirations. That was 2014, right? 2014. 2014. Yeah. And, the and he ran away. And, and that's when, when things really began to sizzle in Ukraine, culturally, politically, people started to understand that, uh, they had to kill, you know, they had to, they had, to, they had to stamp out the, the, the Mus the Muscovite in their brains as, uh, one of our actors, uh, uh, Oleksii Hnatkovsky, uh, who plays Ivan Dobush, uh, the brother of Oleksa says, you know, you, you need to stamp out the, the, the Russian in your, in your head. That's occupied territory. We need to deoccupy our brains and our souls uh, as well. And, and that's what's happening in this war. I don't think that there's anybody who has a uh, misapprehension about whether the Russians are uh, elder or greater brothers at this point in time. Uh, we just hate them all. <laughs> Talk about the uh, actors in the film. Are they acting in other productions now, other films, or are, they, uh, are some of them on the front lines even fighting? 
Yeah, yes and yes. Um, we, ha- we have many people from the film uh, on the front lines. Uh, Siri Michalchuk, another Oscar-nominated, uh, uh, our, our Oscar-nominated cinematographer, arguably, you know, Ukraine's leading cinematographer. He's, uh, he's on the front lines. Uh, we have other actors uh, from uh, that played uh, gang members uh, of Dobush's in uh, in the film, and they're on the front lines. Uh, they show up to our presentations in in their uniforms. Uh, I serve in the Territorial Defense Forces. Uh, I signed up uh, in January of 2022, still still before the war. So we're we're the second line of defense, and we we had some significant uh, uh, experience uh, on the ground on the job experience during the siege of Kiev and the, at the beginning of the war. Um, we have uh, members of the crew, uh, met, some of whom have died on, already. God, God rest their souls. And, uh, you know, uh, even to complete the film, we could do a film about the post-production. Uh, what Oles Sanyan and, uh, and Max Asadji, our producer, had to do to, to finish the film was just, just heroic. What did you have to go through? Uh, that must have been extremely challenging during wartime to finish finish this film. Hundred um, percent. You know, all our studios that were working on this in in in, in Kiev uh, basically shut down. The people fled. Uh, some went to uh, to Western Ukraine, to Lviv, to Lutsk. Uh, we had to complete. I think there were like three or four studios that were working on the post production. Uh, two in in Western Ukraine, one in Poland. Uh, the polls really helped us out to finish this film, and I think one in New York. Uh, Sanyan, of course, uh, and Max uh, couldn't leave the country uh, because uh, they're of conscription age, and um, and so they had to direct everything essentially from a battle zone. We had people doing uh, the sound uh, systems and the different aspects of post-production from Zaporizhia, from their basements in Zaporizhia and Kharkiv, people who stayed behind, so... They were doing this during air raids and bombings, and it really is a film on it on its own. Uh, the music, for example, had to be when we had an orchestra, the orchestration, you couldn't find a, an intact orchestra anywhere in the country. So Oles was going around and, and finding group, you know, strings and and then and then winds and and then brass and and getting them to play the different uh, parts of uh, of the score, and then we had to mix the whole thing together in in separate studios. Uh, so it was, it was quite a challenge. I'm, I'm curious about the soundtrack. I, I heard you used, um, interesting, innovative Ukrainian instruments that maybe we don't even know in the West. We used the uh, traditional Ukrainian, uh, songs that were digitized in, in many ways. And, and we used, uh, very, very interesting, um, electroacoustic, uh, innovations, uh, as well that, uh, by a fellow named Alexander uh, Chorny, uh, who uh, uh, who was an adept of uh, Ala Zahikavich, and uh, she's she's the leading innovator in this in this regard. And so there's some pretty cool uh, uh, electronic acoustic uh, music uh, in this that you know way above my pay grade to get into in details. <laughs> but uh, um, you know I, we can certainly get you. Uh, uh, get you people who can talk about it in, in depth, but it, it it's cutting edge. There's a lot of things that are cutting edge in this movie. Um, you know, even the, some of the panoramas, I mean, this, this whole film was, uh, you know, it's a, people watch it. They say you know, Hollywood blockbuster. I mean, it's say, a major step for Ukrainian film. It's, it's a huge leap, you know, especially looking where we came from, you know, where you look at the, where Ukrainian film was in the doldrums of the nineties. And, and all the challenges that we had to try to pull Ukrainian movies into, 
into the mainstream in the, in the 2000s. You know, we, we don't have private sector money. Uh, and in fact, most private sector money comes with major strings attached because uh, the, the people that fund it, they have business interests, et cetera, or, or they have uh, wives or girlfriends or both who, uh, who they want to play major roles in the movies and you know, who can't read or write or, or, or mm-hmm. sing or anything else. So it, mm-hmm. it, it, it's always a challenge. So this, you know, a lot of it was state-funded, and that also comes with strings attached, but it's also limited funding. Um, but th- this movie, Loser uh, Tversky, who plays our Baal Shem Tov in the movie, told me that this would be somewhere, you know, around $100 million in, uh, in, if this was done in a Hollywood setting. Um, and when you see the, the panoramas and you just see the complicated uh, set scenes in, uh, in the mountains and in other places, you can, you can just imagine. You know, it was done for, for considerably less, I can tell you. Ukrainians are very creative, technically and engineering-wise. They're just creative in general uh, because we've always been told by either overlords, nobles, or somebody else that we can't do things. And so we always find out a way to do it. When I was in the government, I, I was an advisor to Prime Minister Groisman on uh, investment policy, and I ran a comp- uh, an organization called Ukraine Invest, which was Ukraine's uh, um, investment promotion agency. And one of the things I was trying to promote was the Ukrainian uh, getting uh, uh, Hollywood uh, to come and do films in Ukraine. We can, we can talk about that. It was so hard it, it, talking to American investors because it wasn't that Ukraine had a bad reputation. It was that it had no reputation. Most Americans couldn't find Ukraine on a map of Ukraine from my conversations. And, and uh, you know, that wasn't surprising, uh, you know, since it was, in their minds, it was really Russia until, until the last 20, 20 or 30 years. Um, but one thing that Americans, especially in the IT sector, they all knew about Ukrainian engineers. They knew how creative ah, were the yes, Ukrainian yes. IT Special engineers. Special Everything, both from, and, and they could always find a solution to any problem creative they weren't linear thinkers and and frankly that's why we're winning this war is because you know our army is made up of citizen soldiers and uh, it's people from from small towns and villages who just fix things and just you know any problem is just a a, a solution to be found uh, whereas the russians don't fight this way and uh, and and so we've you know even even on this counteroffensive which we hear oh you know you're not doing so well what's taking so long etc it's part of the movie mentality, you know, you, you started your counteroffensive. I've got an hour and a half to watch, uh, you know, uh, want you know a Hollywood ending, right? It, well, exactly. I mean, can you imagine if, if, if we had uh, to do D day today, the storming of Normandy, you know, by, by two days later, people would be wondering why the American army is not in Berlin and, you know, war doesn't work that way. And we were told you had to fight using NATO doctrine, uh, combined arms, warfare maneuvers, which is, you know, a combination of uh, infantry, artillery, armor, and airplanes. But by the way, we're not giving you the airplanes. So if, if each one of those things represents a limb, it's like sending our, our boys into battle on one leg. We tried to storm them, but we've got, you know, five, uh, five mines per square yard along a thousand, almost thousand mile uh, front. So we stopped that and we said, we're not going to lose our, our people. And we're, we're getting creative again. And, uh, we're using the things that we were taught, but we're using them creatively. We're starting to use drones, both water drones, drones and air drones, yeah, etc. We, we hear about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. So all of this, but all of this will have a spillover effect into the private sector, and I think into the film industry as well. Um, you know, our our guys are incredibly talented, and you know, Loser can tell you a lot more about this than than I can about his impressions on the set. 
But there's a real opportunity for Hollywood to shoot movies in, in Ukraine because we have the space, we have the people, and we have, it's like super cost effective. So it's, once we achieve victory, it, it's something definitely to look at. So you finished the movie during wartime. How do you promote a movie during wartime? What did you do differently in promoting this movie because the country's at war? I, I talked to guys like you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, we, you know, it's not, it's not in English, it's subtitled. Uh, so that's a, that's obviously for an American audience, uh, uh, a complicating factor. So we have to make it interesting. We we're trying to create some buzz by getting, uh, uh, loser has been just fantastic in helping us in this regard because he is a Hollywood actor. Uh, he's, it comes from, uh, uh, the, the Hasidic tradition. Uh, he knows mm-hmm. what he's talking about on all all matters. And frankly, if he doesn't know what he's talking about, he makes it up and sounds really credible. Uh, but uh, that's what, that's what I'm supposed to be doing as a lawyer. But, uh, but, but he's done a, he's done a great job in terms of getting us, you know, trying to get some publicity and we're just talking to people. We're trying to get, uh, as much as we can, uh, into, uh, into the blogosphere, social media. I mean, the fact that it's been such a phenomenal hit in Ukraine, we're trying to reach the Ukrainian diaspora in key countries. I wanted to ask you about that. Yes, right. how how will you target that? Because the diaspora is really large in in the U.S. Where I'm from in Ohio, we have a large yeah. Ukrainian immigrant community. I know Chicago. There's a number of American cities, and obviously Canada. Um, how how do you plan to roll out the film to to them? Well, we we've all, we already started, and and it's been hugely successful. A lot of it is actually we we've been using um, uh, uh, local distributors who are. Uh, Ukrainians, mostly women from uh, from Ukraine, who have experience in the film distribution business here, they've just connected really well with uh, with the community and with the theaters. We want to generate some momentum by having successes among the community, and then trying to get it into the uh, the the broader mainstream uh, with the success of uh, of of going to to the community. But the community, aside from the people you grew up with or I grew up with, is now expanded considerably by displaced people, uh, refugees from, from Ukraine as a result of the war. It's almost cathartic for people. They are so tired. We are so exhausted. Um, you know, we know we have to keep fighting. We know we need to keep going. And, th- and this movie has, uh, has just been such a huge lift to the spirits of the people that watch it. And, and, and in all honesty, uh, David, that, that has been the, the thing I've been most proud of and most gratified by is uh, is to see that we're actually able to speak to people to to speak to their hearts and and to give them a lift in a very difficult time. We saw this in in Zaporizhia and, and Dnipro which and, and Kharkiv which are, are pretty much frontline uh cities. You know, Dnipro's a little further back, but it's basically one massive field hospital because that's where all the the injured soldiers and civilians come from uh, Bakhmut and Donbas and and from from the south in Zaporizhia. But Zaporizhia is 30, 30 miles from the from the front line. They're they're bombed every day. And you premiered the film there. We did, and same thing in Kharkiv, which is like eighteen miles from the front line, uh, from from the Russian border. Uh, and and so you know, people everywhere here have learned to live with vulnerability. Um, you know, nobody. We had three air raid warnings in in the uh, in Dnipro during the film, and nobody left. Actually, the first the first time it went off, about twenty people got up, and I thought, well, that's not bad. We lost twenty people, but they went out to get popcorn 
they all came back. <laughs> and so, so, you know, it just speaks, the, the movie actually is just a reaffirmation of the resilience of, of Ukrainians. And, you know, we're, we're just not going to allow you know, Putin to dictate our lives. I mean, we're not, we're not suicidal, uh, but we're not risk adverse. We're risk informed. And, you know, when an air raid siren goes off, everybody looks at their, at their apps and they see whether it's a, a plane that's gone up or whether it's rockets and, and drones coming at you. If it's just a plane, people say, okay, that's, that's a risk we can live with. We're not going to go into a shelter, even though they probably should. Uh, but then if, if, if there's a sign saying, you know, there's been a launch of, of caliber or Iskander hypersonic missiles or ballistic missiles or cruise missiles, because we know they're coming at us. They, they don't, the Russians don't launch these at military objects. They launch these at, at uh, the civilians because the, yeah. the, they're, they're at war. This is, you know, they're terrorists. Uh, they're basically genocidal terrorists. I mean, it's war crime on top of war crime. And, and part of the problem is that the world has just become numb to the level of atrocity that, that, that these, that these people have done. And, and that's why it's important to talk about this. You know, I, I, you know, I don't want to be overly graphic, but you have, you have, you know, systemically raped children in Kherson where we, we liberated it. And, you know, there's no separation that's between so the, 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 the vagina and the anus. Uh, it's how badly raped the girls were and boys as well. And, you know, what do you do with these kids now? You know, you, you, they're, they're traumatized for life. And this is all over the place. And, uh, the, you know, 20,000 children have been kidnapped from Ukraine to be sent up for adoption in, in Russia. And these kids have parents, they have families. I they're mean, looking for them still, right? They're, and they're still looking for them. them. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel, I want to talk about some of the similarities and differences between Hollywood and Ukraine, because I believe there are some, some similarities for sure, but some really large differences. One of the biggest differences that struck me is you mentioned um, government financing for film. Obviously, in Hollywood, we don't, we don't have anything like that. We really don't have a, anything like uh, Ministry of Culture or 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 a Ukrainian. I, I guess there's a Ukrainian state film agency. That's something, um, you know, something we don't have here. Is that necessary to get a film made? And is there a risk that uh, the government will try to censor or even promote propaganda? I know in Russia, a lot of the films made there are propaganda films. Is is there that risk as well too in Ukraine? Well, I mean, state funding of films is actually a European, probably more of a European model for movie making than, than the Hollywood model. You know, the Hollywood model is designed to, to make money, whereas historically in Europe and in Ukraine, you know, that was the secondary feature or objective. The main was to make art. And so you have very different kind of genres uh, that, that come out of that. And we're going to face a big challenge in the next couple of years because there are no movies being made now. For, for obvious reasons. And, and in fact, if you spoke with Olesanyan, the director, uh, he would say, you know, we don't do anything till after victory because all the money that the state has right now needs to go to, to, to the war, to, right? to the war effort. And we'll, you know, it's important. Culture is important, et cetera. And one, one of our actors made the, uh, made the point that, you know, people talk about the cultural front in the war and he didn't like that analogy because so he says, look, there's no front. A front is where you lose limbs, where you're injured, where you're, you're, you're bloodied, where you're shooting people. He said, nobody's doing that on the cultural side. He said, we are the cultural support. And that is important. And we've seen that with this movie. I mean, some of the most um, 
uh, important and and poignant uh, screenings we've had has been to 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 military personnel. In fact, the first people that saw the movie was the 68th Mountain Brigade uh, from Western Ukraine on the front lines in the east, named after uh, Oleksa Dobush, uh, the Dobush Brigade. And so, wow. the, the, yeah, Sanyan and Oles and uh, and Max uh, drove out there. They had helmets, body armor. The whole thing. They took a projector. They took a cameraman. So out in the field, they 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 showed this. They screened it literally out in the right on the front, or just just on the front, just before the front lines. Yeah, uh, they were in not some in a theater even. No, well, no, there were no theaters. It might have yeah, been a theater, course, yeah. but there wasn't. It was in the basement of that theater. I can assure you. You know, we've we've premiered this all over Ukraine. Um, you know, we've we're into our fourth week, and we're only down fifteen percent in attendance. So, That's you know, pe- people are still going and That's a, a lot of people number. are seeing yeah. it more than once. Yeah, it's a very great number. And uh, I mean, all, all of that is really vital to us as well in terms of, you know, uh, getting people to understand what this movie is about and what it means, you know, to, to, to everybody, both civilians and, and to soldiers. Daniel, I know you were in Kiev on that terrible day, February 24th, 2022. Can you describe that day? Yeah, you know, I mean, so much has happened since then that it's 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 almost you know a, a struggle to go back and 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 get those feelings. But you know, you we all lived with this this fear and and the anticipation. It's almost worse than the act uh, of when when are we going to get invaded? When are we going to you know? Because we knew it was right on the cusp. And then about five in the morning, when those first uh, artillery barrages uh, started, you know, you say that's it. It's, it's, it's begun. I mean, we're just not as civilians. We are just not programmed to, to process this stuff. I mean, it's, it's a primal fear. It's a primal fear that you're going to die and, and you don't even know how or when you don't know what to expect. You know, none of, none of us have ever gone through this. Um, but you know, you, what you do is, you know, I was already in the territorial defense forces. We had already started our training um, you know, we, we quickly hooked up with the, the military and, the, the main military and special forces. And we started working for the defense of, uh, of cave, you know, everybody was involved from, you know, we had this great iconic photo of this grandmother on, on the left, on the right bank of, uh, of Ukraine near Bucha and Irpin, uh, famous cities now, uh, walking across the field with a pail, uh, two pails in her hands, uh, borscht in, in, uh, for famous beets, Ukrainian beet soup in one hand in one hand, and uh, a, a pail of Molotov cocktails that she'd made in the others. And they asked, where, where are you going? She says, it's for the boys. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it was, it was total, this is a war of total resistance, David, where you're either on the front or you're, everybody's working for the front. So even those people that are not serving uh, on the front lines, um, you know, if you're serving in the territorial defense forces, sometimes we are integrated into the front lines. Uh, most of what I do is uh, is securing uh, important things that we need, like helmets, body armor, uh, drones. Lots of that's that's a big focus that 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 we have right now. So you know, everybody is is it just doubles down to to get the guys what they need. Um, plus, you know, we we're ready if they we are the defense of the northern border right now. You know, if, if, if we have to defend our, our, our region, we'll do our duty. Um, you know, that's, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. You learn to live with the vulnerability. Uh, it's stressful, but you know, it is, it is what it is. We didn't start this war. We didn't ask for it. Uh, but we're going to win it and we're going to kill them all to get them out of our property. 
Daniel, you uh, have uh, served in the government and you're very close uh, in government circles. I have to ask you uh, a question that uh, people here in America are fascinated with. It, it's commonly known that several important figures around President Zelensky, including his chief of staff, come from the world of film and TV. How did that happen? That's <laughs> well, very unusual. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of another example in the world like that. Well, I can, I can, Ronald Reagan, but, uh, uh, who was, you know, an icon, uh, especially to conservatives, but to all Americans, um, True. you know, how did that, how did it happen? They got elected. Uh, it's as simple <laughs> as that. And they got elected massively. I mean, a free and fair vote. Um, they got elected even by people in the East. They, they, they there had been by that time. That are I mean, they're, they're, Russian. Well, right? look, there was so, there was so much, um, it's it, it's an it's it's actually an interesting question. In 2014, the country was still kind of divided between the the people who were they weren't pro-Russian, but they were more pro-Soviet. You know, the in the East, they wanted the Soviet Union back, the yeah, the old certainties a yeah. of a state and everything else. It wasn't that they liked the Russians in particular, but they spoke Russian because they were heavily Russified, etc. And then you had the more nationally conscious, as we talked about earlier, center and and East. But over the course of those eight years, from 2014 to 2022, people in Mariupol, Kharkiv, in Donetsk, Oblast, in Zaporizhia, they, they had front row seats of the kind of atrocities that were taking place in the Donbass. You know, they realized that the uh, Russian world, Ruski Mir, as it's called, uh, is, uh, is not, 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 not exactly uh, a good thing for them. And so they, they became much more consciously pro-Ukrainian. And uh, when the war started... Everybody from the East uh, took up arms. And, but before that, people had great hopes for the changes that would take place politically in the country uh, after the Maidan. We had much more democratic governments. We changed the constitution to give uh, much more representation uh, uh, to, and voice to people, um, how the government was formed so it wouldn't all be controlled by the president's administration. You know, that didn't work out the way they expected to. There was still a lot of corruption in the, in the government. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was in the government for three years, 2016 to 2019, I had to fight this every day on behalf of business and people got fed up. People just said, look, we want to go to Europe. You know, the visa free travel that we got to the EU in 2016 was massive in changing That's people's a big deal, right? perspective. It was huge. 20 million people went abroad and came back and they said, mm. you know, we don't want to live there, but we want what they have. And, and so the demand for change and the demand for democracy, the demand for justice, uh, was very, very high. And Zelensky spoke to them about, you know, even though he had no experience, people wanted an outsider. People didn't want somebody who wanted, who had any political experience. I think you had a bit of experience with that in the United States around the same time. People just felt that they had, that they were left behind. And Zelensky, when he came in, I mean, they didn't, they were, it was it was kind of amateur hour, you know, and uh, Is that it was right? very, it was very, well, they had no, ex I mean, they were from the film business, you know, they They're from they, the show, show they, business they, world, and, right? <laughs> and every, every week, every week I felt like I was just watching another episode, you know, especially with all the people all they his, were firing. Uh, his TV show, Servant of the yeah. People, is that what, is that what it but, felt like? But, but I'll tell you, when the war started, it was exactly what we needed. The messaging was phenomenal. Wartime president. Yeah. there were three things that happened that right in the first week that, that actually, I think, forged the Ukrainian resilience uh, in the war. The first was when uh, he told the Americans, when they, asked, when they said, Let, we'll get you out, 
he said, I need ammunition, not a ride. Uh, which is, you know, for a comedian, you know, it was a good, good one-liner, but it, re- great line. It, it resonated around the world. The second was when he went outside with uh, the prime minister, with his chief of staff, with the head of parliament and said, we're all here. And it wasn't just that they were physically here. It was like, they we, as, it, we, too, as too, a Nate, yeah. and yeah, he did a selfie. The president was mm-hmm. doing the selfie and, uh, and, but it was like, we, it was grounding the country. Like we are all night, here, wasn't it? It was the it was the first night. It was the first night. All this happened, and then the third thing was when our our small contingent of border guards on Snake Island uh, told the Moskva warship, the biggest ship that they the Russians had in the Black Sea, to go fuck itself, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and that was that be, just became a rallying cry. You know, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. That was that just became a a war cry for you. It became, became a it, stamp. It, too, it, it, didn't it? it became a stamp. It became a T-shirt. It became, you know, stickers on on iPads and and uh, and, and and computer uh, laptops and and everybody said, okay, we just we're just going to get this done. You know, I never believed. I knew. I knew this. There was no way they were going to overrun Kiev in three days. I mean, I just just didn't know where this narrative came from. But you know, the problem is that all the experts in the West. Are Russia experts, and somehow being a Russia expert um, qualifies you to be a Ukraine expert. When, uh, when in fact, you know, it, it has very, very different uh, dynamics in in both countries, as everybody found uh, to their chagrin. Right, right, right. I just I'm fascinated with the fact that uh, the president's advisors uh, come from a, a lot of them come from the show business world. Do they help? craft his message so effectively because that's been one of um he's he's such a powerful orator and, and his his messages are so clear and so important is it because of his show business team that he's doing such a good job at communication well i mean it's more it's more than just his team there are really good teams in the ministry of defense the former minister had an outstanding uh, uh team of communications uh, uh folks uh, and the uh, General Budanov in the in the military intelligence is a great communicator. He's got a great team. We have good communicators. But the president, the main, the person that used to write the, the best material for the president's show when he wasn't president was his wife, Alana Zelenska. Oh, I didn't know that. She yeah, was a she was the chief. Sc- sc- she was the chief writer. She's really emerged as as a rock for the nation as well. You know, she mm-hmm. just she just embodies uh, the sort of compassion and empathy and resilience of a, and and strength that Ukrainian women have in general. We're we're pretty much a matriarchate in this country. Uh, any any man who's honest will tell you that women actually rule here. But uh, it's probably a good thing. You know, she's taken on this uh, this uh, challenge of of talking about mental health and and David. This is going to be one of our our biggest challenges going forward. I mean. Uh, for for generations, I mean, there are we we have gone through, you know, aside from the just the horrors of war alone, but the the brutality uh, with the sheer the sheer gruesomeness with which the Russians uh, try to win by destroying uh, the citizenry is 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 just incredible. And you know, we know this war could be over tomorrow. All the Russians do is lay down their arms and go home, and this is done. If we lay down our arms, if we stop fighting, we die. They will exterminate us. And, you know, we know that, that, and this is why we can't leave any land in their possession, because you're sentencing those people to slavery and slaughter. I mean, any place the Russians are, you look at Moldova, Ossetia, they, you know, they're a cancer in that society. They bring nothing but, 
you know, despair, decay, destruction, and death. And, and so we will, we will fight even if we have to throw stones at them, but we won't because the American people are behind us. And that, that keeps us going. That really does keep us going. That's right. That's right. Daniel, one last question. What, uh, what do you think is the future for Ukraine? What's the future for the Ukrainian film industry? I think the future is bright. Uh, both for Ukraine and for for the Ukrainian film industry. I mean, this country has galvanized certainly democracies around the world, uh, certainly in, in Western democracies. You know, I used to talk about a uh, uh, a European Ukraine. I, I now talk about a Ukrainian Europe, and I think that we we gave NATO back its mojo. Um, we we gave the EU purpose finally, uh, and and found its way. And we showed that, you know, you can stand up to tyranny, that democracy and values and, and the fight for freedom really, really matter. And, and I think that message needs to be carried forward. And, you know, with the, with the, as we integrate, as we become a member of the EU and eventually a member of NATO, you know, we'll be a, we'll be a contributor to European peace and security and a great place to invest. And, and I, you know, we're a big country, the size of France. Uh, hopefully we'll get our people back. We'll be back to 40 million people. Um, and I think the Ukrainian film industry, it's going to go through a tough period in the next two, three years because no films are being made. Uh, so there's no pipeline. But, you know, I think there'll be a lot of documentaries that are going to be done. They're going to be very, very powerful. 20 Days in Mariupol has, has really, really shocked people around the world. And, and there'll be others as well. I think we'll see that at the Oscars too. I'm, I'm a bit well, I, I, really hope, I really hope we do. And, uh, and, I, and I would really, you know, I hope that Hollywood you know, there's a, there's a, there is an angle to this that I think that Hollywood uh, uh, should look at and uh, in terms of private money coming in. The whole Jewish-Ukrainian story. I think there were, you know, Loser and I spent five days together. We didn't even kill each other at the end of it. It was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> we drove 2,000 kilometers together in, in, around eastern Ukraine, and we talked about this. All the, the, the rich uh, histories and interaction of... of uh, we even talked about a, a TV series of, uh, you know, so remember Bridget Loves Bernie? That's probably way before most of your listeners' time. But, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood trace their roots here. Um, they may, they may, and, they and may the actually, music industry, too, and the, very much Yeah, so. they may yeah. want to explore some of those. And, and we would mm-hmm. invite you to do that. And you can start these conversations before the war ends. These conversations can take place right now. And, uh, and, and there's some phenomenal ideas that are being bandied around. So, you know, if there, if there is a, a will and, and even shooting non-Ukrainian m- movies here, you know, I mean, I come from Toronto, which, you know, ends up being Chicago, New York, LA, San Francisco, and lots of other mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I think the president and, and his team understand, uh, the need for, uh, creating incentives for for places the the Dovzhenko studio which needs to be uh, upgraded but that's that's like almost uh, uh, fifteen acres of uh, of property in the center of the city I mean it's it's a it, you know in the Soviet times they were producing forty movies a year and uh, uh, feature films and uh, and so there there's a great tradition there and we have some of the best technically qualified people in in the world to uh, to shoot these movies at a fraction of what it'll cost you in other places. I think there'll be a creative renaissance in Ukraine, and I predict there'll be many joint Hollywood Ukrainian projects. In yeah, the co-productions not just would in be film, great. but in music yeah. too. I, I yeah. really believe the music industry is 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 ready and poised for a 
for a, a renaissance as well too and, and they're coming out to the world because there's some amazing ukrainian musicians as well as filmmakers there so much to come when this war is over 